Second Corinthians chapter five. We come into a passage of scripture that I've really been looking forward to, and every study of Second Corinthians would be looking forward to this passage of scripture as we've been building up to a very well known and sometimes well used, sometimes ill used verse in Second Corinthians chapter five. And again that's verse seventeen that we're looking towards. We're gonna pick up verse twelve. Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, I will be reading out of the New King James Version. God's Word declares, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. As I shared a little bit earlier this morning, we come into a passage that is very precious, uh, well known, but also um, well used. uh, Sometimes for good reason and sometimes for very poor. Uh, We come into a it, and we want to consider its context uh, somewhat carefully, but this is a verse that in many uh, applications has ignored really the main application in the passage before us. As we talk about what it means to be a new creation, that we make it take on something that is not implied really directly in the passage, it certainly can be uh, used in that respect, that as many use it, um, rightly so. There's also been a lot of abuse of this passage, especially it seems like in recent days, in my generation. We want to consider it and its truth within the context of Paul's defense of his ministry. That as he does so, he is introducing the philosophy of ministry that he is driving him, based upon his knowledge of Jesus Christ, of the resurrection, the knowledge, as we've just seen, of the judgment seat of Christ coming, that we will have an answer, and therefore our goal, our objective, our aim, must be to be well-pleasing to God. Not simply because we must answer to him, because of all, but because of all that he has done for us, all that he has accomplished on our behalf, that we must... Uh, respond, that if we are truly His followers, His servants, they'll respond living out our lives 
in a manner that is well-pleasing, not just somewhat pleasing, occasionally pleasing to Him, but well-pleasing to Him. Always and in every manner. And so Paul has been defending this and presenting this position. We saw last week as he entered into the drive of his life, the love of Christ, he says, compels us. Um, Why? Because of Christ's death for us. As one died for all, he says um, in verse 14, then all died. That all who trusted in him, that all have participated in the salvation that Christ has accomplished through his death, burial, resurrection, that those who claim that for their own, that he died for me, that those who live now should live for him. We live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That this is the force of the Christian life. This is what drives us. And we desire to live for Him who died for us. For He has given us real life. Where we once were participating really in just the living dead, the zombies that we once were, Christ has made us truly living. The world kind of got that upside down. They think you start off truly living and turn into a zombie. The fact is the reverse. Men are walking dead until they meet Christ. And then they are the walking living. And we are living not for ourselves, but for Him who accomplished that on our behalf. And by the power of His resurrection, we can now live. And not only do we bring that into the manner in which we live, but as we're going to see this morning, it presses much farther than that, much deeper than that. And we're going to consider that in just a few moments. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for a wonderful passage of Scripture describing the incredible working that you've done in us because of your Son, Jesus Christ sacrifice and His resurrection and ascension. By His endeavor, we can sit today and marvel at the opportunity to be called your servants and even more so your sons. And Lord, as we look into this powerful working of your grace and mercy and love towards us, We pray for your help in at least beginning to grasp its depth and width. And we know that we cannot explore those to their termination today. We, We look forward to all eternity discovering just how much you loved us, how much you've accomplished for us. Lord, it is sufficient for us today to be instructed in your word by your spirit. We pray that it might be accomplished today without error or opinions. Lord, it is also 
necessary. We know that for us to live what we can understand and to bear fruit to your glory in our lives. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul takes us from understanding the compelling nature of the work of Christ on our behalf that now we have response. We have an opportunity to respond. In fact, a, a necessity to respond. An obligation to respond to the work of Christ uh, for us, to live our lives for Him, because He is the one who has delivered us from death to life. And therefore, everything that we are, everything we have, uh, not only in terms of physical or material possessions, that's not really what I'm lo- talking about, Everything that we are and everything that we have in terms of spiritual possessions are His. And if the spiritual are His, then the physical, these entrapments of this world, of this life that are so temporary and so really unimportant, are of course His. Those are kind of the caboose that comes along with this train that we ride upon, driven by this locomotive of the power of Christ and His salvation that he has provided for us. And so, yes, we expect the material things and the physical things to be uh, pulled along with that, but what we really want to focus in on today is not that material. And we have made this too much about the physical world and just shows the carnality of our mindset in, in our world today that we want to keep driving the physical into what Paul is obviously speaking of the spiritual overwhelmingly. And so 90-some percent of this is really focused on our spiritual lives because in Paul's mindset, the material, physical, is really not very important. Uh, But it is a good measurement of what's going on spiritually in your life because if it's not being pulled by all the rest, if it's not connected, uh, then the rest must somehow not be going on in your life. There must be vacant there um, because the idea that you're going to serve God in your spirit but serve yourself or men with the rest of what you have, the lesser important things, um, is just uh, unreasonable to Paul. And so he comes to this and the whole focus of this is that we're going to get away from thinking about one another, thinking about Christ, thinking about our relationship with him from the fleshly side. And this is such a powerful and important uh, prerequisite to getting to the verse that we love, and that is that we are new creations in Christ. Um, And old things have passed away and all things have become new. Uh, We're going to talk about that obviously this morning, but the prerequisite here that we cannot avoid is verse 16. That from now on, Now that we are living for Christ, that he has died and risen again for us, and we are dead to ourselves, dead to sin, and alive to righteousness, alive to Christ, from now on, once that has happened, Paul says, we, the people of God, regard no one according to the flesh. That we do not concern ourselves, nor do we really pay homage to the idea of elevating the flesh. That, well, you know, they're... They're, they're stronger, they're more capable, they're smarter, they're, they're prettier, they're uh, whatever it is. We, we just don't give regard there to their wealth, to their position, to their uh, uh, fame. We, don't, we just don't 
engage that. We no longer look at things and people in the flesh anymore. Uh, we now know Him, one another. We know Christ on a different level. And, and He talks about Christ coming in the flesh. We have known Him. Um, but if that's all you knew about Christ, was that He came in the flesh, it's not enough. The fact is, is that there were plenty of people who knew that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Yes? And they were His enemies. They saw Him face to face. They recognized uh, the events of the cross, they were there and concerned about the resurrection and they were involved in all the swelling up of, of interest and the working of the Spirit in the early church. But they were, as much as they were connected to and have knowledge of it, it meant nothing to them. For they were the enemies of the work of Christ. They opposed it. They raged against it. And so just the knowledge that Christ was on earth, that Jesus lived here, and that he died on a cross, just isn't sufficient. This is what Paul's talking about. He says, yes, it's important that we know that, but if that's all you know of Christ, it's not enough. It's not enough simply to acquiesce to the historical person, Jesus. It's simply not enough. To know that he became flesh and say, oh, he's a good man. He taught great things. He impacted the world. And we have this religion on earth called uh, Christianity. And that he sits right up there alongside the other big guys, you know, Confucius and, and uh, whichever um, Buddha you want to pick, the fat Buddha or the skinny Buddha um, of, of Muhammad. He just sits up there with all those other big guys. Not enough. You have to know Christ as something more than just that historical figure. To know Him in the flesh, we did once, but now we know Him differently. And just as we are to know one another differently, we don't think of Christ in the flesh anymore. It's not what we focus in on, for we recognize that while He is not here amongst us, He is yet here for us, within us. And we look at His work through the Holy Spirit. We anticipate His work and is the com completion of that at the end of this age, um, in eternity. But we don't look at these things as fleshly. And once we get this transition in our thinking from considering one another from the world's view, from the flesh's view, from the physical and material world, and we begin to understand and to consider truth from the spiritual world that Christ has uh, renewed in us, we can then come to verse 17 uh, on a right footing. Verse 17 tells us, therefore, again, this is our second or third, therefore, and we just goes right back into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we can just follow the thinking of Paul back into therefore, therefore, therefore. So because of this, this. Because of that, this. Because of this, the next one. And so right here we are now because of the resurrection uh, that is the compelling force of the Christian life that we experience death to sin and, and being alive to righteousness because of the work of Christ. Therefore now we approach life differently. We now approach it from the spiritual and not the physical. 
And so all of our accomplishments in the physical world um, just don't measure up to the accomplishments in the spiritual world. We can build our resume, all right? And when you think of those terms, build your resume. Well, we're going to sit down and think about all that I've accomplished. And you write out this resume. Oh, I went to this school. I got this diploma. And I had this GPA. And I went to this college. And I got this degree. And I was summa cum laude or cum laude. Um, I, I, I was just loud. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I didn't have any law. Just loud. We build this resume, and I've been to this training, and I've done this work, and I've accomplished these awards or recognitions of men, and we build all this resume of our life, and and we all keep doing, whether we put it on paper or not, we've all done that over the course of our life. We all reflect back, whether it be, I've borne these children, and they have done this, and then we start adding to our resumes these addendums, which uh, we see too many parents doing that whatever their children are accomplished somehow um, needs to be tacked onto their resume of life too. Um, and Paul says, you know, all of that that you build to try to impress men or yourself uh, is pretty insignificant. And you get to heaven and that resume really doesn't mean much. In fact, frankly, it means absolutely nothing at all. It's burned up. Gone. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished, how many buildings are named after you. It doesn't matter how much is in your accounts. Um, on a physical level, it doesn't matter. These things that we applaud among men and that we laud, that we, that we give honor and glory for, that we give recognition over and awards for, God just simply says, that's the flesh. We come to Christ looking to build a different kind of resume, a spiritual resume, and these are a little more difficult to measure. And we've seen some of the measurements given out here in 2 Corinthians and also really throughout God's Word, but we've seen them laid out there. Paul has laid them out and saying, you know, I want to be transformed into the image of, of Jesus Christ. From, from glory to glory. I want to go from the law to grace. And I want to be measured that, I, that I'm walking in the Spirit, that I'm walking by faith, that I'm building this kind of resume, that I, that I have a longing to be there. And well, it would really be well-pleasing to me to be absent from this body, present Lord, but it's more important that I'd be well-pleasing to God. Oh, that we would work on building these spiritual resumes. And this is what Paul, striving to do in his life, defends his ministry with. I am not about building a resume of this world. I am not going to come to you and try to defend my ministry based upon a resume that looks like something I would take into corporate America. That is not what protects or defends my ministry. But rather, I bring to you this resume that wherever the Spirit leads me, I went. That I wanted to preach the knowledge of God in every place. I wanted to be a fragrance that diffused from my life. He said in 2 Corinthians 2. And these are difficult things to put measurement on. 
And Paul recognized that. And we looked at the measurement a few weeks ago of our motives being the judgment seat of Christ, of what is worthwhile or good and what is vain or empty or bad. So now that we've transitioned our thinking from the resume of the world to the resume of heaven, what does that look like? What does my resume in heaven look like? And now, when we start thinking like that, we are ready to get to verse 17. When we are, have set aside the resume of this world and counted it as garbage, I say, Pastor, I didn't say that. That was Paul. Again, in Philippians, this stuff I count as garbage. And he lists off his resume in several places in, in Scripture. Here's who I was, a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was this, I was that, I was this. But these things I count as refuse, as dung. He needs to go sit on the manure pile. That's how I count them. The resume of this world, we don't glory in. And so this transition that we're talking about here in verse 16 is not an easy one for us to make. We have, and raising young adults now and and teens, um, we are concerned about making sure they jettison from our from our home into what will hopefully be a productive adult life. And we want to make good choices, uh, not only over their education, career choices, spousal, things like that. Um, But fundamentally, all those things that we work on to build a good early resume that maybe will propel you in this last efforts of parenting to propel you into a successful life... um, we need to remind ourselves, and my wife and I need to do this every now and then, that that really isn't equal to success in God's sight. That what my children need to know at this point, when they are stopping being children, is that what propels them into real success is a spiritual resume that begins with the knowledge of Jesus that he came in the flesh and died for them, rose again. Begins there. But that's not even a diploma. That just means, well, I was born. Now, what does my resume look like? What have I done for God? Where is the walk by faith? Where is the walking in the light as He is in the light? Where is the, where is the demonstration that, that I am a declarer, uh, an ambassador, He's going to say in verse 20, we're really going to get to that next week, But where is that evidence? Well, um, as parents and as encouragers of one another and and as brethren, uh, we need to be challenging one another to build these resumes of the Spirit. And this is not something that just is accomplished once. I have this degree now. Here's a piece of paper saying I've accomplished this in the Spirit. And now I write it down and now I can forget everything I learned there and go on, press on. But rather, it is just continually building. That after I complete this endeavor in Christ, that I, based upon what Christ evidenced Himself there, that I am now ready to go on and do more for Him. That I'm not going to sit back and just uh, coast based upon that one event that I did for Christ. Okay, that's one. But is your resume done? No. 
We continue to strengthen it. And so this is what Paul talks about. It's going from thinking about the flesh to the world, of the world to the Spirit of heaven. And now we come to verse 17. And here we go, another therefore. Therefore, because our thinking is different now, because Christ died for us, and we're now in the spiritual realm. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It doesn't say he will be a new creation. It doesn't say, uh, really, it just says if anyone is in Christ, a new creation. You really, that's just what you are now. It says old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we have seen people take this verse and horribly use it. I want to just very quickly touch on some of those to warn you. That in your own study of God's Word, that in your own uh, working in it and considering it and listening and reading, whatever else is out there, that this is one verse that I have found uh, that has been horribly misused. I've seen it used to people's own interests. They come to this and they say, well... Everything that happened, everything that happened before I got saved, it can't be counted at all. Everything of who I was, what I was, everything back there is gone. Um, And they use this verse to speak to that. And therefore, when you examine my life, um, you can only start from the day I accepted Christ as my Savior for real which usually means that they did it as a child and then they got into some heinous sin and then they recommitted themselves to Christ and that's when they want you to start, is at that point. And so we have pastors out there today who really aren't qualified to be in the pulpit because of the life they lived prior to Christ even um, and saying, "Don't you can't count any of those commitments I made. You don't count any of those uh, broken covenants that I made with my wives. You don't count any of that because, and they'll use this verse, because all things are new. So you have to start with Christ and then you can go forward from that and you can't count any of those things. If that were true, then we should make the same claim as they do in that realm with everything, including our physical lives, that anything that happened before I got saved, I shouldn't suffer any consequences for. And again, they, they fail to distinguish between something that can be forgiven and something that is removed from, in terms of consequences. And the great example, of course, is Israel, who was forgiven when they sinned against the Lord and failing to listen to the two spies, to listen to the ten instead, and did not go up in the promised land, God says, oh, I forgive you, because they were very sorry. They were humbled themselves before God. They were very repentant. They were very sorry. And God says, I forgive you. But you're going to go wander and die in the wilderness 40 years, even after you've been forgiven. And they tried to apply this verse the way many people try to apply it today. God forgave us. We did wrong, so now we, we, we refused to go, and that was wrong, and now we're going to um, go. We did the wrong thing back then. God now says, I forgive you for that, but you're going to be 40 years in the wilderness, because that's the consequence of that. Even after forgiveness, you have to pay the consequences for that. 
And their response was, oh boy, well we should just go on up there and conquer the land because that's what God really wanted us to do to begin with. And they wanted to pretend as though the thing they'd been forgiven of had never happened. But the fact is that it had happened. And because it had happened, it prevented them from being able to do what God originally wanted them to do. Does that mean they couldn't do anything to please God anymore? No, they needed to please God by going out wandering the wilderness for 40 years until everyone in that generation dropped dead, except for Joshua and Caleb. And by doing that, without complaint, they could please God for the balance of their life. But they didn't want that. They wanted to go back and pretend that none of the things they did before this event of God's forgiveness happened and do the original thing God wanted them to do. Because they did that, well, you know the story, right? They got slaughtered. Because God wasn't with them. And so that application of this verse is just off base. Based upon that, as soon as you come to know Christ, uh, all your smoking, drinking, and sleeping around, all the physical consequences of that should be gone, and you shouldn't have any of those. Your age should go away. Your, your STDs should go. Your uh, emphysema should be gone. Everything. You should have no, nothing left lingering from your old life. But we know that's not true in the physical world, and to a degree it's not true in the spiritual world. That while there are things that are forgiven, we recognize that there are consequences of things. And Paul realizes the consequences of those things. He says, I was the number one sinner. I was an enemy of the cross of Christ. I have no right to him. He doesn't just forget and say, don't count that against me. No, he reminds us of it. Because he reminds himself of it. This is who I was. And I carry about that of my body. And you just wonder, as he was being stoned here and, and driven off there and whipped there, if he didn't in his mind saying, you know, this is wrong. No, he didn't think like that. You know what he thought? Well, we don't know what he thought exactly. What images would have come to his mind? I stood and encouraged men to do this to a man named Stephen. I'm deserving of it. I will not complain. But rather, he glories in that. Because I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the one that went around and chased Christians down and sought to have them arrested and murdered. Even for David is another example. We find him committing these atrocities of murder and of adultery, and God forgave him. But there were consequences. The baby died. There were consequences. His sons rebelled against him. There were consequences of all these acts that God had forgiven him of. And so let's not misuse this verse and think that therefore because I'm forgiven and all this is covered in the blood of Christ that I am free from any consequence of this. Wrong. That is not what this scripture is telling us. It is telling us that now as believers in Jesus Christ we are a new creation not 
talking about the flesh and not talking about what 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 uh, fits our interests. But now, all those old things that we are interested in, that we're concerned about, all that old stuff is passed away. You see, we always think about it of, of God uh, transforming us. But this is really about a matter of perspective. We, the new creation, um, consider the old things passed away, and now all things have become new. We now look and engage in everything from a totally new perspective. Again, building on our heavenly resume instead of this earthly resume. That this is not permission to simply ignore everything that happened in the past. Because if that's true, if it's true that I should not count anything uh, that happened in your life prior to coming to know Christ, so any marriage that you had back there, and there are pastors in public today who are on their third or fourth marriage because they don't want to count any of the ones that happened before they got saved. I got saved. You can't count those against me. Don't, none of that that happened. If that is true, then the fact is, this morning, there are no consequences to any behavior I have done ever in the past because I came to God confessing today. I confess my sin to the Lord today, this morning, and therefore, it's all forgiven, and you can hold none of that against me. No act of, of unfaithfulness to my wife, no act of, of uh, drunkenness, no act of anything. Because it's all been forgiven. And uh, so I'm fresh today and I am qualified to be in any office in the church. But we know that's not true. Those acts would disqualify me from the ministry. Does that mean I'm not forgiven of them? Well, I'm forgiven. Confess our sin. He's faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin. Wash us full and rich. So, yeah, well, I'm forgiven, but there's still consequences. And among them would be, I'd be I would be disqualified from the ministry. I could not stand here and do this. So that application of this verse simply be, creates this environment of absolute permissive. What, what heinous sin could men commit that it's unforgivable? Well, the Bible only describes one. In that case, we can have no standards for ministry, whether it be a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or church member. We can have no, no standards. Because everything, you can just simply confess and forgive and then it's gone. New creature. New creature. Start me all over. <clears throat> no, this is about understanding that in the spiritual realm we have a new life. And that we begin to build something new out of that. This is not a statement. Uh, and there's, By the way, there's another group that's called the Grace Covenants. Um, the Covenant of Grace people uh, that believe that the Bible um, is just the beginning and that uh, because the Holy Spirit is in you, that uh, you can know truth that's in addition to the Bible uh, and uh, that you are equal to the apostles and that whatever a Christian does is right because he's a Christian. 
and it uh, just lends itself to great permissiveness and uh, no Christian can ever sin because we are led by the Holy Spirit and therefore whatever you do must be the Spirit doing it and so no act of a Christian is ever sin. It's a mess. And again, this verse comes up in their discussion. We're all new and therefore um, we can't sin. And if their perspective is correct, their conclusion probably is correct. The problem is, is that they didn't read verse 16 and get their mind off the flesh and get it on the Spirit. They could only focus on this life, this life, this life, instead of understanding the spiritual life that Paul has called upon, that we are new creatures, a new creation. We are a working of God, and that work is going to be accomplished in us, as he talked about, that we, he's preparing us, who has prepared us for the, the something more, and that we live in that kind of a life, and that in our consideration... We look at our old things and recognize that that does not define me anymore, but neither does it compel me anymore. We always look at the definition one. Well, well, that doesn't define me anymore. That's not who I am. I'm in Christ now. You can't even think about any of those things that happened before. And that's where they want to focus all their attention, wrongly. Rather, it is not that God uh, made all of those just disappear. Rather, He has done something new in you. And now, not only are you by definition that, but by purpose, drive, you are that. And what is startling is that these people who want to be so defined by this don't live by it. The idea of being a new creature creature and a new creation, the idea that all things are old things are passed away, all things have become new, is requires something of us. It means I'm no longer interested in propping up that old dead guy. I'm no longer interested in propping up and building this earthly resume. I'm no longer interested in those things. They have no they, they don't compel me at all. They, they don't they don't lure me. They they're they're just not of interest. I have something better. I have something new on my mind. And is that that I'm compelled after? This new creation. I want to go in this new way. I have become new. And Paul says, no longer do you measure me by that old junk. Not in terms of defining me, but now I am pursuing something totally different. I'm pursuing Christ. And the measure is in the measure of the world. And these men coming into your church want to measure my resume by the world standards. They want to look at my physical resume and tear it apart. And I don't really care. Because that resume doesn't mean anything to me. It's this new resume. (laughs) It's this new creation. This is what I want you to consider. Stop dwelling on people's physical resume and measuring them by that. Measure them by the spiritual resume. Where is the evidence of walking by faith, of living in the Spirit, walking in truth, of humbling themselves before the Lord? And Paul says, listen, we're new creations because 
We have considered people differently because Christ died for us, rose again, and gave us new life. And we want to jump from verse 15 to verse 17 and ignore verse 16. But verse 16 is a very important intermediary step that we start thinking differently. And now with that different kind of thinking, I'm not going to excuse any past sin. I'm going to recognize that it was there. It's forgiven, but I still live under the weight of the consequences of that that might follow me. And under that weight, under that consequence, I can still please God if I live according to the limitations that those previous acts bring upon my life. And this isn't just about the ministry. This is about a lot of different aspects of life. And when we get into passages of Scripture about divorce and remarriage and things along that line, it is very applicable. Why is it? Because now I'm not really there to serve myself. I have, I have built an understanding of the love of Christ that brought Him to die for me and that, I, that He's given me life in His life and I'm dead to myself. And I'm going to live for Christ. Therefore, my whole view of man, capital M, my whole view of man, kind, my whole view of me changes and it's transformed. And this is part of being transformed by the Spirit of the Lord being transformed from glory to glory is to have this transference of thinking from me in the flesh to me in Christ, the spiritual person that Christ has created now. And I have a whole new perspective. And now... This drives me. What is my life in Christ? I'm new. And instead of trying to excuse the past, I look forward to what I ought to be doing for Christ given the past. What can I do for Christ given my past? Can I still please Him? Could Israel still please God? Yes! They still could please God, but not by doing what they should have done before their sin. Their sin changed what would please God for them. God says, you're going to go out in the wilderness. They say, oh, we're going to go up and take the land now. Uh Uh-uh. That no longer pleases me. (laughs) Dead people getting slaughtered at the hands of Canaanites. Israelites getting slaughtered at the hands of Canaanites because what pleased God changed. It didn't change because God's capricious. It changed because of their disobedience. Could David ever please God again? Once he had committed adultery with Bathsheba? Could he ever please God again? Yes! Most of the Psalms he wrote were well after that. But no matter how much he fasted and prayed, no matter how much he desired it, the life of that child was taken. David knew it. 
Could Bathsheba ever please God again? Apparently, there are consequences. Her son Solomon becomes king in his place, in David's place. Could David ever please God again after committing murder? But there were consequences. His own sons rebelled against him. The sword didn't leave his family while he was alive. There were consequences. He wasn't allowed to build the temple. Does that mean he couldn't please God at all? No. It meant you can't please God me that way anymore. God says you can't please me that way anymore. Well, let's not take this verse and say this erases everything back there and I can live this new life as if none of that ever happened. And that is not what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is about now I am released from the penalty of that and I'm going to live a new life, a life that pleases God in consideration of that. What pleases God is that I recognize that these choices I made even before Christ, these commitments I made back then, these acts I made, and that acts I've made since knowing Christ to this day, even though I've confessed them and repented of them, and, and that they are still weighty. There are still consequences of those. And yet, because I'm forgiven, I can please God, though I must now live a very different kind of life. And this is what it means to be a new creation. Not that that's all wiped out and disappears, but rather, now I can live for God this way. Not because now that ever happened, but because now, even because of all that happened, now I can please God it might be different than what God's original plan was for me. And yes, God has various plans. He has multiple wills for people based upon your obedience. And every time you disobey, you've just narrowed His will down. Every time we are in rebellion to Him, we're just narrowing it down. The options that God has for us to serve Him in. David's options of serving the Lord were narrowed. Because of his sin. Israel's options for how to please God were narrowed because of their sin. And this is the, and even Paul's, is, were narrowed because of his sin. And even in his conversion, he was told that, oh well, via, via uh, Ananias in Damascus, you know, Ananias says, I don't want to tell this guy about Christ. You know how much wickedness he's done? You know what God tells him? Don't worry, this guy's going to have to suffer for me. <laughs> oh yeah, let's get him saved so he can go suffer for Christ. <laughs> Great, but that's what it took to get Ananias to go tell him about the Lord and remove the scales from his eyes. Don't worry, this guy is going to really suffer. He's going to talk to Gentiles and the kings, and he's going to really suffer for my name. Paul was told that at the very beginning. He accepts that. Doesn't say, oh, you can't count the past because I'm a new creature. Uh-uh. He recognized I'm going to have these limitations, and if that means the thorn in my flesh that God won't take away, so be it. I accept it. 
um, that I'm going to live in God's grace. And yes, that is living in God's grace. Not doing whatever you want, doing whatever He wants. Given your past. Not that I'm carrying the guilt of it, I'm carrying simply the limitations that is imposed upon my life. But even serving God in that capacity, I have great liberty within the limitations of those. So this is the power behind the new creation, all things becoming new. This isn't just um, this horrible misuse. Rather, it's this whole new direction I can now take in my life and I accept from God these limitations, and I'm going to please Him. And if that means wandering in the wilderness, I'm going to wander in the wilderness the best I can for the next 40 years. And there's a guy that pretty much did that. His name was Moses. He had one hiccup in there that cost him, but um, he didn't get to go in the promised land. He asked God, do you think Moses wasn't pleasing to God? Did he not please him the last part of his life after he had hit the rock instead of just talking to it? Did he not get forgiven for that? Yes. And he begs God, let me go to the promised land. God says, oh, you can look at it. You're not going in. You broke my command back there. Does that mean Moses is never pleasing to him in that whole last section of wandering? Oh, of course not. He was very pleasing to God within the limitations that his previous rebellion created for his life. You can serve me, but you're not going to the promised land. You can see it. You're not going there. He lived with that knowledge from that point on. Did Aaron not serve God? I mean, he built an altar to a calf. Could he not ever please God again? But he didn't go to the promised land either. He died in the wilderness. Are we willing to accept the consequences of our previous life and redirect our life in saying, I'm a new creation. That doesn't mean all that disappears. It means that now I have a new direction that I can explore within the limits that my old life has created that I can still please God in here. And I'm going to serve Him as faithfully and as surely as I can because of His work in me. And now I'm not thinking about my flesh anymore like I used to. I'm not thinking about me. I'm thinking about Christ I'm thinking about my spiritual resume. I'm thinking about building this this, uh, uh, testimony of walking by faith, walking in the Spirit, walking in righteousness. Um, I'm going to build that. That's my new life. And I'm going to do that. Why? I'm going to think that way. Why? Because of Christ. And His death, burial, and resurrection. And this is the argument that Paul builds built on itself. We are compelled by the love of Christ. This is how we must think. We must judge this way. I'm dead to who I was. But who I was is still defining my limitations. But I'm alive to Christ. And that's not a fleshly thing. That's a spiritual thing. And so I'm going to live my life as a new creation not going to give myself over to the old stuff. It's gone from me. I've already changed my thinking. Now my behavior is going to reflect that because of what Christ has done for me. And now I'm going to look at all things new.
How can I please Him? Given my past, what is the best I can do for God today? Given who I have been, how can I be what He wants me to be today? The very best. I want to be well-pleasing to Him. With no regrets, just anticipation, I want to serve Him with everything I have because I'm not really worried about the flesh anymore. not thinking about this. I'm thinking about eternity in heaven and what's going to matter there is from this day on, what have you done to please Him within the confines that you have brought into your life by your past disobedience. Wonderful verse. But it's a verse that should drive us to action and should transform our thinking. It is not a verse to be used for permissiveness, for licentiousness, that just I can live however I want, get forgiven, and then shazam, I'm a new creation again. No, that is not implied here. Something much more powerful is implied here, is taught here, and that is that you can live for Christ today. Given your past, you can live for Him, fully pleasing Him, being well-pleasing to Him. I say, well, but I missed the best God had for me back there because of my rebellion like Israel. You can still be well-pleasing. Every Israelite had the opportunity to be well-pleasing to God by simply accepting the consequence of their action and living in a manner that pleased Him, well-pleased Him, given the, those confines. You have to be in the wilderness. You have to eat manna 40 years. 40 years of eating the same food. I can do that. I'll please God with that. Because I want to serve Him. This is what it means to be a new creation in Christ. You can from this day on, be well-pleasing to Him because of His work in you. It's going to require you to have a very different view of life. No longer focused on building a resume of the flesh, but a resume of the Spirit. And that's the challenge and the joy of being a new creation in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. And Lord, help us that love to compel us to not only know you better, not just know about what you did on earth, but to know you as our Lord, as our Savior, as our friend, as our brother, as our God. And to consider one another similarly. And to consider our own state based upon the same measure. We are no longer our own. We are no longer interested in the old things that passed away. We are simply focused on this new life, this new creation that you called us to, equipped us for, empowered us for, and will measure us by this day on. And my prayers that you might find in my life and in the lives of each of these. 
And like Paul, we strive not after what well pleases us, but what well pleases you. We thank you that we are capable of doing that because of your recreative power in us. That we can be reborn in your love, in your salvation, and in your service. Help us to live up to that. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.